You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Before Rosh Hashanah, uh, the new year, within a week, we'll be starting uh, marking Tufshin Pei Bays. And uh, as we've talked about, uh, there is this sense, but I think let's zero in on on just plain actions that people um, realize that their life is usually about. And when they're chided by their their spouses and good friends, there's just, you know, why do you have to do things like that? Why is it that you, you consistently do things? Why is it that you are uh, loud, boisterous? Why do you um, uh, say things when you know that you're going to upset people? Why is it that you can't um, alter things, even though you're getting negative feedback? Why, why did so many people find, even though uh, it's not mystical, they actually see the, um, the negatives all around them and the basis of their actions, and yet they continue uh, to sort of make similar mistakes and do those things, despite the fact that it isn't a surprise that they're going to get scowls, um, they're going to uh, be uh, um, upbraided, uh, they're going to lose friends, and yet they continue to do this and say, well, you know, that's who I am. I know that this is a, a topic that you've thought about and you have your own theories, and I know that you uh, told me before that you're seeing some very, um, I guess, egregious and infamous versions of it on in the public uh, arena today. So, Sam, why don't you... Uh, um, Give us let me first just start in terms of my my own academic and research knowledge about this or credentials and that comes from like years of um, being an expert in diagnosing psychopaths and um, psychopaths are people who behave in ways that are very much opposed to any kind of social or proper norms um, or sense of right and wrong or morality and um what i have always centered on is, I mean, I don't fix, I just diagnose, but uh, understanding the rationale, like, okay, so you are a serial killer, you are someone who embezzles, or you're someone who constantly hoodwinks people out of their savings. What is your perspective? How do you see yourself? What's your rationale? So that's always been my um, approach uh, with these patients to just understand how they're thinking. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, you mentioned in terms of um, public events that are going on, which, shall we say, defy um, good judgment, where the actors themselves should know or do know that they're not judging properly. There's a lot of that, but I think the most recent one is Biden's behavior in the um, how he went about withdrawing from Afghanistan and the way everybody, all the ceremony or Atsim or the advisors were telling him this is not the way to go. Uh, kind of reminiscent of what Trump used to do, but Trump actually um, was someone who really didn't believe people around him. He was paranoid. He thought he had it right. And that's a different perspective. Paranoids, paranoid psychopaths are very easy to understand because they don't think they're doing something wrong. They think everybody's plotting and they have the correct mahalach. But Biden is a, uh, somebody who in the past fairly rational, has always known the power of having experts consulting with him. And here he is running off and doing something which almost any kid would tell you. This will 
explode in your face and in the face of all of America. And he's genuinely interested in the good of America. Some people could have had uh, shyness about uh, questions about uh, Trump. Was he interested? Was he not interested? Was just doing this to expand his own prestige or power or money? But um, with Biden, it's fairly evident he is devoted to to America, and yet he is off there. So that would be a public example. I wouldn't call Sam, can I just interrupt you just for a second? Out of out of sync. Yes. Um, can we throw in when when you're talking about Biden, um, like a hardening of the brain arteries in terms of actions he might do. I mean, what I'm saying is it might be the young Biden might have been pushed to just stick to his guns and say, I want to do this because I said I was going to do it. But then his political wiliness would tell him, oh, I can't do this. It's going to it's going to uh, explode in my face. But is it maybe as he's gotten older, there's this some there's cognitive um, uh, decline that People say you know, they see as obvious about him. Again, I know that you have a you have bigger ah. fish to fry, but yes. just but isn't it? I mean, you, I think you got to throw that in as well. Okay, okay. So let me just say that the problem with, with people who are very psychodynamic or Freudian, like I am, is that even when you deal with organic conditions, it still is understandable from a dynamic perspective, although that's not what's causing it. So let's say there are people who become psychopaths because of a certain lesion to part of the brain. I mean, that's around. You have a certain lesion and you become antisocial and irritable and violent. So we know why that happened, but that does not mean that the dynamics of such a psychopath, that's called an organic-based psychopath, are different than those that get there purely by personality. So what you might say is that if it was a court of law, it's excusable because it's organic, you can't blame them, but the process still, when somebody becomes organically obstinate or antisocial or criminal, the dynamics, like if they are reasonable, you can talk to them. Okay, if somebody's demented out of their mind, you can't talk to them, but let's say someone, and I, again, I've dealt with demented patients plenty of times and Within their perspective, okay, so you explain to me, right? Tell me your perspective. How is it that your son and daughter are turning against you all these years and all they're interested in is that you should die and they should be embarrassed? They will give you a rationale. So again, that just reduces, shall we say, the explanatory power of ideology. How did it get there? But the dynamics are still the same. Again, I would like to say that you can probably get something out of what I'm going to say, even if you don't believe in this kind of extreme way of looking at dementia, basically taking the dynamics and look at all of pathology. I, we can excuse that. If you want to say, okay, let's not include Biden in this conversation because we're going to say it's totally uh, primarily organic. And you can say that about Trump too. Trump is already older than 22 years old. So everybody starts declining. He's had, you know, 50 years, almost time to decline. So let's give him a, I'm willing to give him a break. I'm not interested in condemning him. I'm just trying to come up with a formulation as to why do people act that way. And, I, and from my perspective, it pertains to everybody. It pertains to someone of very low intelligence as well. Because within their framework, so explain this, right? Or how is this person thinking about it? Assuming they are, and I'm assuming they are thinking. Okay, can we roll with that? There is a tendency within children um, to feel omnipotent. That means that at a certain age, everybody feels 
that they are really Superman. They read the Superman comics, or even if they don't read it, they imagine who their father is, who God is, the powers out there saying, yeah, I can do anything. And they really fantasize it. Sometimes it gets, I mean, you can see them in the daily funnies for people who still look at them. Actually, some of them still appear in the Times, um, at least in the Israeli version of the Times. Um, this, this person who feels they're in charge, the kid feels they're in charge of everything. And that definitely comes up sometimes for people who um, be rise to, to a position of ultimate leadership, like the presidency. There have been a couple of presidents around who I would say um, can be classified as being like a, a pathologically omnipotent in their feelings. They can do anything, they can't do any wrong. If they make a judgment, it's gonna work. They can bend everybody to, to, to their will. And they really are very insightful simply because they're the greatest. They start believing it. But that, that, that's just, let's say that's one path in, in, in people. And I believe that even us, the, the regular people, the non-presidents of the world, are the people who don't make much of a mark anywhere, are not held in high regard. Within us, there still is a certain tendency to feel I can just make it by sheer will or by whatever, by concentration. If only I try, I can do it. Now, there's no question that we have many uh, um, feelings that don't run this way. So we also know that we're mortal. Sometimes we know that we're really schleppers, that we can't succeed and we can't get there. And what I'd like to say is that these two approaches, or shall we say unconscious almost approaches or tendencies, are not inconsistent in terms of being able to exist at the same time. And that's because something that I've discussed a couple of times, it's a principle of ambivalence, which says that we can have opposite tendencies and opposite dynamics coexisting, even though they're totally contradictory. And the ego kind of knows when to turn one on or when to turn one off, when to temper one with the other. And when they get sometimes to extreme situations of stress, the ego is not functional anymore. And one of those comes out, either that you're totally self-flagellating and depressed to being almost to, to a, a, an irrational way. I am no good. I can do nothing. I, I can't even move. There's nothing I can do. The whole world has put it against me versus I can do everything. So in moments of stress, you can end up being in one of these extremes and basically liberating yourself from the ambivalence. But the ambivalence, I would say, is the major way of functioning. So what, the, the simple answer I'd like to give is that someone who um, gets stuck in a mode which is totally um, uh, um, disregarding values they may have or values that most of society around them has and that they kind of know about or even then ignoring the reality are basically binging on that aspect of their ambivalence which we would call the omnipotent end, which derives from, let's say, a two or three-year-old mode of functioning, which you stick with from a psychoanalytic perspective. And that because the situation is extreme, this ego is able to repress the reality testing or the morality aspect, which someone has implanted with them, the superego aspect, we call it in our business, they're able to repress that and vice versa. When you get to be really depressive and really dumb on yourself, the fact that you are an agent and that you have some free will over yourself, that gets submerged. So those are the two basic aspects that I would say that allows us to explain, especially within psychopaths, within people who, who act totally out of control, 
Or on the other hand, with people who become totally depressed and feel they have no agency whatsoever to explain how these different modes can exist, at least in terms of understanding what the person's mental life is or what the person's psychological life is without making a judgment whether they're right or wrong. That's not the understanding, just how do they function? I want to introduce one other point and then I'll let you beat me up. And um, that is the point that many of us feel that we're not doing the right thing. We may not conceptualize it consciously, but we feel that we're wrong, we're bad, quote unquote, wherever the criteria for badness comes. And what comes along with that is that I deserve to be punished. Now, in um, clinical depression, that is blatant. I mean, people are coming to a festival, tell you blatantly, I deserve to be punished. And what I find fascinating from, because I do work trying to, to get clear what the person's thinking is, is that they deserve to be punished. Almost that same quote I get from people who are totally atheistic. And some of them are bright. And I talk to them, I say, deserve by what moral criteria? Are you saying God? No, I don't believe in God. Are you saying in terms of right and wrong? I don't believe there's any such concept. So what do you mean by I deserve to be punished? And the truth it's the honest people will say, I don't know, but it's a feeling I have within me that I just can't get rid of. And I know what's going on because it's hearkening back to the formative years where you were so implanted with the notion, this is bad, this is evil, without, when a little kid is told this is bad, this is evil, this is horrible, the main thing is they know that they're going to get hit for it. But when, since it's couched in this kind of language, they are believers. They may not be believers in God as a two and a half year old, but they're believers, maybe call it fate, maybe call it inevitable retribution. And that becomes a catchword for deserved. So that becomes part of functioning of everybody, even when they manage to become intelligent and grown up and wear a tie and be a, 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 um, an Ivy League professor. In the back of their mind or in the back of their ego, there's a notion of a morality, which is quite strict. Of course, the ego sometimes manages to repress that, not to make you um, go along with it. And if you rationally look at it, they'll tell you rationally, I don't believe in that at all. But emotionally, they believe in it. Emotionally, they're living in it. So yeah, what I want to say, yeah, I just want to, yeah, I'll finish my sentence and then people who behave in the way that's bound to bring them horrible consequences it's because they really are plugging into that notion that they deserve to be punished and they're doing whatever they can, almost despite themselves, to make sure they get punished and then they get what they deserve and then they feel at rest and no longer dreading the, the horrible um, punishments that will come on you because they're there already. Okay, that's my layout. Yeah, yeah. I, I think part of what you're saying uh, in terms of people who claim not to believe in any higher power and that there's some you know god who's um balancing the scales or fate uh things working out getting their just desserts but would you say that that would change based on the parenting um strictness or mode how that child is parented um i mean you say this comes in the formative years that should really be different based on the strictness or did your parents give you timeouts? Did your parents show you uh, that they um, were upset at you? Um, I mean, that's sort of what every person regresses to. 
right? As they are helpless in that stage of being one, two, and three years old, and what they're looking for is their parents' uh, love, support, or dreading their anger or the fact that they're going to be sent to their room without dessert. Um, based on what you're saying, the reactions later should be commensurate with the amount of disciplining or the type of disciplining that they had when they were children, correct? Okay, so you're touching on something that's definitely correct, but I want to stress something. Um, what you're saying is very irrelevant in terms of extreme cases. Some of the examples I've given you, people who are pathologically, um, let's say, antisocial, that means that they had a very harsh um, upbringing where you weren't just sent to your room, you were punished in a way that would be considered torture or, or unacceptable by today's standards. But if you think of it in terms of having no input at all, any input which is forced upon a child to do this or do that is seen as something which implies a, a, a system of this is right, and this is wrong. So nobody can go through development unscathed by the feeling that there are outside pressures and they don't really have the brains or the understanding and definitely not the political power to stand in their way. So I would say everybody will have that implanted to them and there will always be a shadow, shall we say a shadow government that exists within you that you that you can, just can't get rid of. But I would say you're correct that people who make it, um, take it to an extent that they become blatantly pathological must have had something very harsh going on at that stage. Like right. become, let's say sadists, masochists, or as I said, serial torturers. People who go around actually trying to hurt other people for hurting sake, they had it very harsh. But consider it having an unfettered childhood, which would be a disaster. The person will grow up with no values at all other than what he wants to do at the moment, which is what a child is like. That's horrible. But if you had that, you would not have anything haunting you at all. No conscience whatsoever. Yeah, you, know, you know, I hear stories. Um, um, is it possible that part of it is um, the fear of changing and be, being different? I'd rather just take, I know this is going to end up with my wife not talking to me for a couple of days. I know this is going to end up with being castigated um, uh, in the media, but this is just my modus operandi. Um, change is, is, is much harder. And I'd rather take my lumps because I'm used to these lumps. Um, you know, we, we find uh, people who are uh, let out of prison um, find it extremely difficult, especially after years of where they were to really take on a new path of life. And despite their uh, parole officer or advisors telling them that, you know, this is going to get you in trouble, they'll, they'll do it again and realize that they're probably going to get caught. And maybe all of us in some ways uh, just find this, you know, this, this difficult, little, comfortable world, like you say, it's sort of like, in some ways contradictory to each other it's difficult but you know what this is a difficulty that i have lived in it's a difficulty that i can manage whereas starting a new leaf and opening yourself up to different uh, types of reactions from people that's already a challenge and people enjoy just like they come back to the old 
television shows that that somehow make them feel uh, at home with their same characters. They they appreciate living in that same sitcom of their lives. Maybe that's part of it. What I would say is that if I were not a Freudian, this is precisely how I would formulate these tendencies of behavior. But I just since I am a Freudian, I, and I, there's a lot of truth to it, I just want to add one caveat that people have learned that they're comfortable with a certain mode of functioning, but I want to put it at the subconscious level. In other words, they don't quite know. When you talk to them, they say, I'm trying, but I failed. I couldn't make it. I really meant to get to the parole office on time. I didn't really mean to take that item, but I just didn't have time to get the wallet, something like that. In other words, they don't really know what they're doing, so to speak. You have to kind of tickle them and probe, and then it comes out. So I think your approach is correct from my, I think your approach definitely is something that most psychologists would agree with, most behavioral analysts <laughs> would agree with today. But us like arcane Freudians would say that if it's true, it's not true at a blatant level. Not so, And there are, I, I've seen prisoners who I've seen again and again come up in, in the system when I was consulting, where they would say, look, it's tough on the outside have to think of where am I going to sleep every night? Will I get a job? Will I behave? This is so much easier. Okay, people who do that blatantly, but those those are not the usual. I'm talking about someone who goes to shul and davens and means it and says, okay, I've been a lousy person. I'm jipping everybody. And they're back to it. And they have rationales. No, I didn't mean to. This was an exception. It's only this time. It wasn't my fault. But when they go into analysis or they go into behavioral treatment, it becomes fairly clear to them that they are shooting themselves in the foot, like subconsciously, and they want to get there. So what you're saying is real, but if only you would accept the notion that they, people don't always have it as a clear conscious agenda, then we're, we're on the same page. So, Shmuel, you know, part of, if we've gotten criticism, but where's the solution? Where is you know the answer? Some so I, I think let, let me be the voice of our audience here and say okay. So how do we since this is a tendency that is entrenched from your perspective in such a deep way, and we find it for all of us. What can we do, especially as you know as religious people, if we are, but just to be as you say, even if you're atheist, you don't you want to 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 make this world or this your interactions better um what can we do to to change this and in, in your perspective from where you're coming from it's a solid question and i'm not at all sure that i know the answer or whether there is an answer but again just i want to be safe over here and not put my you know foot into my mouth the first thing i would say is that Understanding a situation by itself gives you control about it. Okay, when you behave in a way that makes no sense to you, you almost feel that there's no way I can ever control it because I don't know what the heck is going on. When you understand, okay, I have two tendencies, and I'm sure as a rabbi you can easily translate this into a Jewish perspective. Uh, I have I have different tendencies or different motifs in within me that push me in different directions. And I understand that sometimes um, I let parts of me that are not so ideal from my perspective take over and get there. So realizing, taking that perspective, understanding that the dynamics are going down within you, give you the capacity to deal with them. I'm not quite sure what that capacity is or how you get there. And there are quite a few 
systems out there on how to manage your life. But when you are totally bedoffled saying, how am I acting in a way that makes no sense? I must be crazy. I must be totally out of control, in which case there's nothing I can do. That's not correct. Now, it's this, if you take the principle of ambivalence, understanding that you have different tendencies within you, some of which have been programmed in, none of them are ironclad part of you that you can't shake using proper techniques. So understanding that gives you a sense of agency that you wouldn't have otherwise. But beyond there, what to do, how to get there, that's not quite my bag. I know people around who manage to do it. I know people around who manage to turn around their life and understand, yes, I do have these tendencies, but I'm aware of them and I'm not going to go with them. And yes, it'll make it harder. Understanding what goes on around you gives you a method of controlling it. Not understanding it puts everything beyond your control because you can just turn yourself into, into a road mannequin, kind of dust. A champion and a, or a, <laughs> an acolyte, I would say, of some of a system that, you, that many find arcane. Um, I'd like to uh, posit uh, the champion extraordinaire of a system that many found arcane and perhaps have moved away from, and the Aristotelian system of morality and ideals of the uh, of the golden mean, and that's of course the Rambam, who in even in his in his halachic works, especially in his introduction to the Pirkeiavos and other places, talks about how change is possible, um, recognizing ideas in yourself and acting in ways that perhaps aren't in sync with your instinct, but are what you know is a better way. And that he believes that just changing your actions, you know, having your intellect and, and getting even what we're talking about, all those negative uh, feedback as a spur he believes that that could actually change you and you could actually discover that even though you're not born that way and it's not the way you were raised and for years you were different, he believes just constant work and doing the thing, uh, doing these actions will result in an alteration in the way you feel about yourself and what you really are. And part of what he does is glorify the the ability of human beings to change despite all the cards that were stacked against them. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, another, I guess I wouldn't call him the Rambam of the 20th century, but I think he, he's sort of in the Rambam's uh, general league uh, about thinking deep about Jewish ideals. And that, of course, is Rebbe Leo Dessler, who um, had to respond to the modern world's rejection of you know, the Rambam's easy equation and say, no, there are certain things you're not capable of doing. He talks about, you know, you're not able to do everything. You can't, like the Rambam say, become an un of like Moshe Rabbeinu or, or something like that. You, you can't turn yourself based on the power of your mind. That That's really something that if we hold out to people, we're, we're, we're making a, we're doing a mistake. We're doing a disservice. And so many people will fail and, and, and feel hurt and feel they haven't been a proper human being. So Rabbi Dessler uh, narrowed the possibilities and he, he wanted people to own up to things that you believe in. There's certain things you're not going to be able to do, but yet realize what 
your the expanse and possibility. It's not what your your friend can do, and you have to make you have to come to terms with that. But there are uh, goals that are reachable uh, within certain limitations, and this stops you from beating yourself up when you fail. So, so I guess you know using the Rambam and Rav Dessler as sort of moralists and guides, they do you know feel that people are able to change. And I think there's probably anecdotal evidence for this as well. I mean, you know, you start with Biden um, and, and maybe there's others, but, but I think that we have stories, whether it's Franz Rosenzweig or, you know, Scrooge from, <laughs> of course, is only a fictional character that Dickens created. But I think that we do have, um, uh, you know, uh, plenty of uh, uh, examples uh, of people who, I'm sure that if they spent an hour with Sam Juni, uh, he'd be able to dig out some of the same essential things they were before, but the way they are now. But I think in, in many behavioral ways, especially the way they seem to uh, uh, demonstrate themselves, they do, have done a pretty good job of not being that same person, right? So uh, whether, whether you're going to take the religious track or not, I think that history has shown us a lot of successful turnarounds. No? I just, if I may, I want to take advantage to say that I, I am an observant Jew, okay? Nominally, for sure. And what I want to say is that there is nothing in the entire Freudian system, even the extreme Freudian system, that contradicts the existence or comes up with a null hypothesis that there is nothing of what we would call Yetzer Tov, and I dare say even Yetzer Ara. In other words, I think that anybody, any analyst worth you know a nickel would insist that there has to be an unconscious and that those unconscious motivations are major determinants of our life, period. But there is no evidence that we don't have a separate moral component. A la Kohlberg. Kohlberg was a famous psychologists who pushed in that direction, you could have an extra force, like we talked about ego, we talked about superego. From a religious perspective, we believe that there is a tendency within people to do good, to do the right thing. Outside of pleasing the ogre who is threatening you as a two or three during a year old or four year old during toilet training or against masturbation, that's there, of course, but there could well be and we believe there is, and again, not me as a psychologist or as a professor, as a person, I believe there is a natia, a tendency towards good. And we can hang up when we're trying to change. There's no reason pulling in some power from there. It's not going to negate any of our unconscious motivations, many of them which, which would tend to pull us towards doing things that are anti-social or anti-morality, but we could well say that that's there. And if we want to get more macabre or in a sense more realistic, there is nothing in the psychoanalytic system that contradicts the presence of what you call a yetzer something which is trying to get you in trouble and not because of the behavioral rationale saying you're much more comfortable doing that. It's much easier lying in bed as you find an introduction to the halachas of the Arachayim. That might be used as a ploy, but basically the motive is to try to get you in trouble. Not to try to get you comfortable with that aspect, that animalistic aspect of yourself, but to get you in trouble. So 
All I'm saying is that I'm a firm believer in the psychodynamics that are affixed to early child development, which are universal to everybody, but there's no reason to negate that those things are there, especially if you have a rational understanding of who you are, where you came from, how people developed. It's kind of rationally makes you believe that this is not all there is to human beings. So I can then understand concepts such as changing behavior or repenting in terms of, of changing the balance of energy you have invested in what many people would call which are internal dynamics independent of the psychoanalytic truths or gospel as I see it. Just realize I'm not speaking now as an analyst. I'm speaking as a person who believes in the psychoanalytic theory almost religiously and especially based on my practice, but it doesn't rule out these other issues. So I've seen people who I would call tzaddikim in a sense, and not people, seen people who I've called rishoyim who are not pathologically sick. I just see them as either having sold their soul to God or having sold their soul to the devil, so to speak. Yeah, so, regardless of what we see of character development. So this right. is a subtle point, and I, I probably can get myself like kicked out of the psychoanalytic society for this, and I definitely don't sound like someone who belongs in a, mm -hmm. uh, shall we say, a theological academy, the way I'm expressing it, but that, that's the nature, you know. You no, well, we, we, we know this is why we, we call our program Standing in Two Worlds, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, these worlds are in some ways really a, you know, a holistic whole, one of the things I just say, I think we can sum up here, a term that you just, uh, you uttered, a word that you uttered, which is soul, the idea of a soul. And that is something that I think by definition is something from a different plane, right? That there's, a, there's an animated power that isn't just giving you uh, stimuli and reaction to. There's some sort of essence that is is larger than what you perhaps perceive your life to be and that somehow is within you and i think that the the belief in the human soul the eternality of the soul which you've talked about in this program um is one of the uh saving aspects i think when we you know people say well help me out of this don't just you know eviscerate uh, the human psyche and throw it on the table in all its ugliness. The the fact that you believe in in the soul, the neshama, as we say, and as we say in our tefillah, that the neshama is tahorei, right? That there's something pure and incredible about it, and that it's somehow it's it, it's within us. It's something that we can discover. It's something that we can tap into, and that is something that you know the Rambam, who I mentioned before sometimes had a hard time um, dealing with because, you know, to him, it was based on an intellectual perspective of how to view history and yourself. Whereas if you do own up to the existence of this eternal soul, then that soul has a life and power that's bigger than the, than the child that was born and was toilet trained and was, um, scolded and grew up with all these type of um, uh, different phobias and other issues. The soul is something which we feel is something that comes from this pure 
state from, as we say, tachas kisei akovo, from the from the throne of glory of God, and that is something which, if you can tap into it, can cause you really, I think, to um, to overcome or at least to compress and to to to, to smooth out many of these issues that that you described like today. To contain, if I may, to contain. To okay. Contain contain those other dynamics yeah and 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 when when uh, so the existence of the soul um it has that power and uh and like you say why am i this way there's something as you say people are inherently good inherently they're inherently because invested as was it wasn't it uh thomas jefferson himself that great deist who said right invested by their creator with inalienable rights it's, it comes from above and beyond. And I guess when we can sort of bring this discussion full circle, part of Rosh Hashanah, at least from our perspective, is not just marveling at this, at this planet and the greatness of uh, the bounty, what this planet can afford, and, or thinking about the state of the way this world is, but to also own up to something beyond own up to a power from beyond. We talk about standing in front of a king, right? We're talking about a king who is creator. And if it's a creator, it's something from beyond. And our soul is part of that, is, is, is an extension of something that came from beyond what we can feel and measure and um, analyze. So uh, I, on that note, I suppose we should wish each other and everyone out there a uh, a happy and healthy, I know, <laughs> coming down to this typical lingo, a happy and healthy, um, better um, 5782. Take care, Shamila. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 